The Poetic Podcast. In Season 2, Episode 5 of The Poetic Podcast, I warn you now, there may be inflationary language. Bob grabbed from the table in front of him a piece of marionided herring. And I warned, don't, don't throw it. Remember, you are an officer in the United States Air Forces. But Don screamed, are you two? I am two, three. Are you one? I am one, two. Well. That was Victor Borgia performing inflationary language on the Ed Sullivan Show, which fits perfectly with today's guest. A poet and storyteller, both comedic and heart-stopping, and a fabulous advocate and enabler for new and upcoming poets. Today's guest, of course, is the wonderful Clive Oseman. Clive Oseman, hello. Hello. Brilliant to get you on the podcast, Clive. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Yeah, me too. Now... For people who may be coming across you for the first time, Clive, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Yeah, sure. I'm Clive Oseman. I'm a Brummie who unfortunately had to move away from Birmingham for work. I currently live in Swindon in Wiltshire. There's not a day goes by that I don't miss Birmingham. Let's just say I'm a big city boy. I love Birmingham, London, Bristol. New York, and Swindon is just, I've never settled. Now, Clive, you may not know it, but you've been on this podcast several times already. People have mentioned your name on this podcast. You're a well-known, established face in the poetry scene, certainly the ones that I travel around in, both here in the UK and in the US. And I remember being in one. I'd said, hi, I'm Jay, I'm from the UK, I'm from the Midlands. And then you then you introduced yourself and you went, I'm, I'm originally from Birmingham. And I was just like, what did you Yeah, I remember that. I do, I remember it. I, I think it may have been one of the Nashville events, either Poetry in the Brew or Just Out. Oh, Poetry in the Brew. That is one I did quite early on. I do remember it. And I remember thinking, how can two people who are in the same kind of area doing the same kind of stuff meet in a different country yeah. do poetry? Yeah, and I was absolutely blown away. And it was the first time I think I heard you do some of your comedic stuff. And I know that you've got quite a big range haven't you you do some of the serious and dramatic stuff and I've heard you do some of that it really touches in the heart but I think you favour the comedy stuff as well I do I mean I used to pre-pandemic I used to whenever I did a set or even an open mic set I would try to mix it up and do some comedy and some serious but the pandemic sort of changed my outlook on things I need to be laughing and I, I found that the pandemic was having a drastic effect on, as as many people did, on my mental health. I decided then that I needed to be laughing, and I'm sure everybody else felt the same, and I just veered much more towards the comedic side of things. And to be honest, I enjoy it more, because I am I think I'm better at the comedy stuff than I am the serious stuff, you know. And I just love that it's one of my favourite feelings to hear people laughing at my stuff it, it gives me a real buzz i mean my one-man show is very much a mixture because that's the story it's the story of someone who was very shy very 
you know, had a difficult upbringing, shall we say, had no self-confidence, really didn't have the belief, although I wanted to make people laugh, I didn't have the belief that I could. That's the story of the one-man show. It's like the battle between the self-doubt and the desire to do it. Is this a second one-man show? Because you also do the Getting to Know Elizabeth. Yeah, that was the first one. That was the first one. So what's the new one called? It's called What If They Laugh At Me? You've done that in the United States already? I've done it online uh, for for a US-based event. I think I've done London, Birmingham, Peterborough, Wolverhampton and Bristol so far. And I've got Chippenham coming up next month and somewhere else which has not not been publicised yet. So, But that's up north. Is this purely satire? Is it purely humour? Or is it a mix? You, you said there are some quite strong themes in it this time. Yeah, it, it's very much a mixture. Um, you know, there's some very heavy stuff, especially in the first half. But I look on it as a comedy because without giving too much away, the comedy triumphs in the end, you know. So that's, that's the story of my life. You know, it, it was difficult, but I got there. I know you on social media as well, and you're quite open about mental health and and things like that. So presumably this is this is something that's really, really important to you that, that draws on life experiences. It is. It, it's very important to me. But the odd thing is that I didn't realise what an impact the mental health side of the show would have on people. I thought thought of it as a comedy that would make people laugh and have a few serious moments. I was, I've actually quite been blown away by the the effect that the other side of the show has had as well. And it, it's sort of got a depth that I didn't realise when I wrote it, you know, so so that, that's been good. I, I mean, I think I've heard a few comedians talk about that most comedy is rooted in struggle of some kind and um, it comes from a dark place and it's trying to make sense of it. I've also learned, I think, that you've got a fondness for rap and hip-hop poetry. Yes, very much so. I haven't been to too many such events since the pandemic but that's circumstances rather than desire but yeah i love i used to love chocolate poetry club in london and they had a lot of rappers and people like woodsy and tremendous was there once or twice and it was just a fabulous vibe i absolutely loved it and i performed at a couple of events in swindon which were primarily rap and hip-hop and then they had a little bit of spoken word as well and i did that and enjoyed it I certainly like to go to the events that mix it up, which is why I like uh, a lot of your stuff, because sometimes we don't know is Clive going to do something dead serious, um, which you throw in sometimes and he just shuts the whole room up. Or are you going to lift the room with your comedic poetry? Now, you're a big fan of wordplay as well. How hard is it to work in wordplay into comedic poetry? It's, this is going to sound wrong, but it actually comes naturally. A lot of my stuff... I have a sudden idea. I, I sort of, it's its strange. I call myself being pregnant with a poem because <laughs> I know there's something there, but I've got no idea what it is or how it's going to come, whether it's going to be funny or serious. And then I'll have one moment, usually when I'm in bed or in the shower uh, or, you know, as an inconvenient time, that one spark will come and then the whole thing just flows and I'll, I'll get it all down as quickly as I can. And then I may have to do one or two edits. And some of the ones with wordplay, yeah, I have to go back to it and think, you know, I need to do a bit more or that's not quite right. But but it does seem to come naturally to me. For me, that's why I like going to all the varied events, because suddenly you'll hear something you haven't heard before in a way that you haven't heard it before. Now, the one thing I want to add on to that is I said that you've already been mentioned on podcasts here. You are a really, really great supporter and enabler 
of new and upcoming poets. For instance, you hosted my online book launch without even a blink, and you were really busy at that time, and you went, yeah, we'll do it. And I'm really, really grateful for that. So is that an important aspect of for you in your poetry yeah. activity, in your poetry life? It is, because I look at spoken word and I look at my own journey, and it transformed my life, literally. It, it took me from being a bit of a hermit who never went anywhere, never didn't want to speak to people and, you know, really shy and withdrawn. The journey took me on to a complete change of life. So I know the power of what spoken word can do for people. And obviously, I enjoy listening to spoken word. And I like nothing more than when I hear somebody who's talented, you know, if they're not particularly well known at that time, you know, I, I do like to promote them. Because, I mean, we, we do Beehive, obviously, and that has been wonderful. I mean, Zoom as well has added another dimension to it in, you know, with the, with the international flavour as well. Um, but it's great. And I love the reaction when we offer somebody a headline set that they're not expecting. And, they, and the reaction shows how pleased they are. And I remember how I used to feel and still do feel, uh, you know, at that, at that time when you get asked to do something. You know, so, yeah, it's it's something I enjoy very much. Yeah, so I, I want to just say, like, for me, thank you very much. You've been a great supporter and advocate for me. And I suppose on behalf of any all the poets who are listening to this, you've helped and inspired, keep doing that because it, it really does make a huge difference. The poetry scene is so big uh, and it's also quite competitive and, and lots of other things that many of us, I think, don't really buy into it. I'm not really that competitive. And um, so it's hard sometimes to to just get someone to believe in you um, and, the, and the work that you're doing. The truth, you know, our each individual personal truth needs to come out. And you're a great enabler for that. So please keep doing that. That makes a massive difference. Thank you. Now, you started in 2003. So I understand um, poetry, like, as an ambition. Yeah, like a lot of people, I was going through a difficult time, marriage breakup and all that. Like you do at that time, you turn to poetry and I wrote some dreadful stuff. I mean, you know, but it was cathartic. What a lot of people don't know, because I don't sort of talk about it, I did actually have a book published in 2005. I know you did, Bloodstains in the Shadows. Yeah, and I hate it. I absolutely hate it. And I actually left a really negative review. I know you did. It's one of the it's one of the few poetry books where I thought is this a, is this a marketing is this a really really intelligent marketing campaign because you said I'm the author do not buy this book yeah and I meant it I don't want people to buy it because it's not where I am now it was typical angsty poetry from a novice who just happened to find a publisher that will publish it will publish a goldfish if you could promise enough email addresses that would be interested in buying it. Yeah. So, yeah, it seemed like a great idea at the time, but it was a big mistake. So I generally don't, talk, I say I've had three collections published, but really technically I've had four. You know, it, it's something that I don't want people reading and thinking that is my work. We won't mention it on the podcast, Clive. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely won't put a link in, in the description. But the one thing I noticed from that is that from that in 2005, it was then... 11 years before you then pulled together your first collection, which I think was Happy. Yeah. Which is just, a, it says it's a varied collection of poetry typical of your life performance set. So what was the reasoning for that difference in time? Because 
a lot of poets like come out and they're dead eager to get published, aren't they? And then they want to bring yeah. out a second collection and third. And you left it quite a long time. Why was that? It's quite complicated, but I I sort of specialised for quite a long time. And this is something else I don't generally talk about, but uh, I specialised for quite a long time in Japanese short form poetry, like haiku and tanka. Yes. I saw that. Uh, and the the problem with that is that Aiku and Tanka are very, very misunderstood in the West. A lot of the stuff, I, I mean, I, I won awards and um, was widely published worldwide uh, as a um, haiku and Tanka poet. But I've, I've heard a world-class haiku poet stand up as a normal poetry night, do his set, and people are muttering, muttering under their breath. He doesn't even know where a haiku is. <laughs> and so I did that for a time, and, and then I got bored with it, sort of... Um, moved away from poetry for a while, then sort of did a bit more. And then the whole thing took off in 2013 or 14 when I met Nick, Nick Lovell, absolutely by a stream of coincidences. Because as I've already said, I was very much a hermit and didn't go out. And and after obviously after the marriage breakup, I was always skint. And the one thing I did was on the AOL, mes- the old AOL message boards, I used to go ah. on there in, in a pseudonym. And I used to try out some comedy stuff on there because my thinking was, if they don't know who I am, it doesn't matter if they think I'm stupid. Okay. You know? But I, I did do some serious poetry as well. And then completely by coincidence, a guy who recently passed away, actually, which is a great shame because he's very influential in Ubihive as well, called Kevin. He was Spurs Kevin on social media. His, his, his actual name is Kevin Duncan. And he lived in Worcester at that time. And Nick, who I didn't know, although he only lives a couple of miles up the road, was slamming in the Worcester Poetry Slam. And Kevin had gone along. He's not a poet or wasn't a poet, but he'd gone along just to see what it was all about. I don't know exactly how it happened, but he managed to unintentionally enter the slam. I think that I think he put his hand up or something because they were one short. And um, he got talking to Nick and he was like, oh, I know a poet who lives in Swindon. Do you know him? And he's like, no. And he put us in touch. I mean, I almost pulled out, to be honest. I went to an open mic with Nick. Uh, first time I met him, he picked me up. We went to Bristol. I was an absolute nervous wreck. Mm-hmm. I really didn't want to do it. I felt sick. I was shaking and sweating. And gen- generally, if if I could have run away, I would have done. But we were in Bristol and I needed to lift arms. <laughs> <laughs> so I did it. And it was horrible. Uh, it was a horrible experience. But it's like a drug. You've done it and you want to do it again. I got hooked. I used to go about, you know, Nick used to go regularly to open mics at that time and, you know, I'd go with him and then I started going out to events on my own as well. But um, that was sort of going nowhere for me because I'm not a classic poet. You know, I'm not somebody who can write really serious, deep stuff with metaphors all over the place. I'm not educated. I'm very poorly educated. And... In that respect, I've got limitations. And I was enjoying it up to a point, but I knew I was going to get nowhere. And then I went to, um, with Nick again, uh, I went to Hammer and Tongue in Bristol. Yes. I thought Hammer and Tongue was just another poetry night. When I got there, it was a slam, which I'd never seen before. And the headliner was Luke Wright. Yes. And that night changed my life, literally. I sat there watching Luke Wright thinking... This is what I want to do. What was it about his poetry or performance that kind of ignited that in you? 
It was funny. It was lively. It was very interactive with the audience and very clever with his wit, you know, and he had the whole room. It was just a completely different thing to page poetry. And I'd never heard of performance poetry up to that point. Uh, you know, I, I went to this event thinking it was just going to be a, an ordinary poetry night. And I was absolutely blown away. And the slam was brilliant as well. And I thought, that's it. That's the sort of event I want to go to. You know, it, it was, um, it went from there really. And, but that, that yeah, that's what accounts for the, the gap. Basically losing a bit of interest, then doing the short form poetry for a few years uh, and then meeting Nick completely by chance. And I must mention as well that um, Kevin, who inadvertently Put myself and Nick in touch. He was also very instrumental in starting Ubihive because we've been talking about doing an event for yeah. a long time and done nothing about it. Uh, I mean, at that time in Swindon, there was the page poetry scene, which was good as page poetry. It was very good. Personally, I found that performance poets didn't fit in there. But yeah, but so we were talking about starting an event and. We've been sort of, yeah, might do. And then one year on my birth, it was coming up to my birthday and I'd had plans which fell through. Basically, I was going to be going away and then, you know, I wasn't going away. And I just put on Facebook, are there any spoken word events within easy reach of Swindon on August the 7th? Thought no more about it. A couple of people replied to some events. And then the next morning, I woke up to a message from Kevin saying, August the 7th, there is an event in Swindon. It's in a place called the Beehive, and all you've got to do is find the poets. Was this Sunday Afternoon Clive? Yeah. About? yeah. Okay. So Sunday, for, for people who are listening, Sunday Afternoon Clive, I think you've described as the sort of run-up to the Beehive. Yeah, and it was the pilot, if you like. The um, pilot. The, the, it, it was a great event. We had um, four or five features, including um, our headliner was Danny Pandolfi from Bristol who is a great favourite of mine. He's a rapper as well, and, and he's, he's a, he does battle rap. He was the UK battle rap champion for a couple of years. Wow. He came and did a set. We had Angie Belcher from Bristol. We had a, a Hilda Sheehan from Swindon. That is actually on YouTube. I don't know if it's the first one. It's certainly an early Sunday afternoon Clive event. Well, uh, there, was, there was only one on the Sunday afternoon. Ah. Well, uh, the... and, and then we spoke to the landlord of the pub and agreed to do a, a regular event. As long as, it, as, long as you, you name it after the pub, presumably. The name of the event was actually Nick's idea, and I didn't get it at first. I must admit, it was like, Ubehive. It's like, Ubehave. Yes. Know? But uh, I must admit, I'm a bit slow on the uptake, and that didn't register with me at first. I'm thinking, will that work? <laughs> And of it's course, very it carry on, isn't it? I always forget how many O's there are in O. There's yeah, a lot of people do. That's become a bit of a problem with emails. I bet it has. I do know. Yeah. I think a couple of times I've I've gone. It's not recognised. Why is it not recognised? <laughs> enough O's in it, Jay. That's why. <laughs> so there was one of those, then sort of transformed into Ubi Hive. How, was it almost immediately, or was there a little time passed between that and Ubi Hive? No, it was immediately. the The Sunday event was on my birthday, August the seventh. And our first Tuesday night Ubi Hive, which became our regular slot, the second Tuesday of the month, that was in September, September the 13th, I remember it well. We had Spaz as a headliner, and then we had Leon Priestnell. Our first couple of headliners were Bromies, because obviously I was very active on the Birmingham scene. We struggled at first. It was very difficult to get people in. It is. Um, yeah, because I, 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 last year I started a, an online open mic, 
and it was very it took a little while for it to sort of yeah. gain any traction did you find like i find that suddenly this you're starting to see the same people come back yeah again and again that's nice I mean, it's actually got to the point where we were going to give up we booked our headliners up to christmas and there was one night i can't remember what month it was it was probably october when we booked kieran king from salford and he came and we got two other features as well and the total nick was ill and couldn't come he, he had the flu or something so i was hosting on my own and the total audience was two features kieran one of the features partner and a very drunk or drugged up individual who kept grabbing the mic off people and rambling into it and that was it for kieran king of all people oh, you wow. know I, I actually texted nick during the show and i was like nick, i don't want to do this anymore you know we're just throwing good money after bad and it's embarrassing and then, you've always made it a point as well to pay your headliners, haven't you? Yeah, yeah we, we never expect anybody to perform free. You know, it, yeah. it's um, Nick replies saying, well, let's give it till Christmas. You know, we book, book the acts up till Christmas now, so we'll run with that. And then the next month, literally the next month, we walked in and we were thinking, why are all those people here? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> we genuinely thought that the pub had double booked or something because there's so many people there. Yeah. And it just took off from there. It was, it was, and then we had some great nights. Um, we had one night where we had Casey Bailey and we had on the same night, we had Solomon OB, the national slam champion. And you now quite often see him on BBC. You know, whenever there's a sporting event where they want some spoken word, it's usually Solomon that does it. And that was a really epic night because Solomon's a rapper as well. I mean, he agreed to do it because we sort of promoted him as he was coming through. You know, he agreed to do it for far less. And, you know, we were honest with him from the start. This is the most we can afford to pay you. And it's like, yeah, I'll do it. You help me. You know, you've been great to me. Of course I'll do it. And he came and the microphone packed up and he was going to be doing beatboxing. So that was not good news. But he performed and performed, and he was still going at midnight. It was absolutely brilliant, a great night. It really was. Presumably, he must have had quite a varied set to keep it going for that long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, was, um, he was doing songs. You know, he, he had somebody with him playing guitar, and it, it was brilliant. just awesome. It was, it, was, it was a fantastic night. Now, you mentioned a few slam winners there, um, and they're in good company, aren't they? Because you're a multi-slam winner. Yeah, I've won a few. Um, tell us about that. Well, I was slamming for quite a long time before I ever got a sniff of winning, and I nearly gave up because, you know, there's only so long you can go on getting knocked out in the first round without thinking, I'm wasting my time here. Yeah. Nick was winning slams. Chloe Jacke, who's a great friend, was winning slams galore. And I got as much pleasure from seeing them win as I did if I, if, if I would have won myself, you know. So, and I had plenty of occasions to feel happy because they were winning shed loads, you know. And so I kept going. Eventually, the first slam I won was in London at the Farago Poetry. Yeah, I've won a few since. I think technically I'm still the reigning SummerSlam champion in uh, Taunton because I won that. I beat Nick in the final in 2019. I beat him by one point. And because of the pandemic, they haven't had another one since. So technically I'm still the champion. Uh, but I think my favourite win was an online one, um, Your Place events in um, New Zealand. L similar to the UB Hive Slam that we've been doing, uh, they had monthly heats and and then grand final. I won a heat, uh, so I got into the grand final. I got to the semi-final of the grand final as well. So I think that was a highlight because it was like truly international. 
Now, I have a sort of love-hate relationship, as you know, with, with slams. I'm not quite sure how I feel about them because uh, I'm not I'm naturally not competitive. So it, I, find, I find it really hard. And a lot of my poetry doesn't fit in two minutes or whatever. The reason I kept doing them is because I've actually got some work as a result of not even getting past the first round. Yeah. The thing I was going to ask you, having won multiple slams and knowing how differently slams operate from one another, what kind of advice would you give to people who are thinking about doing slams? Because like you, my first slam in Worcester, I just turned up to watch. And like you said, I got roped into taking part in the slam. I didn't even know what a slam was or how it worked. And and I did get through the first round in that. I got I got through to the semis, but I didn't really understand what was going on. What kind of advice could you give to people about it? The first bit of advice I would give is never ever take them too seriously. You know they're competitive, yes, and they should be fun. And if you start taking them too seriously and getting upset about low scores or not getting past the first round or thinking I was robbed, I should have got through. You need to stop. I carried on because I, I love I love slams. I love the the atmosphere and. And I carried on, as I say, for so long, purely because Chloe and Nick were doing so well. Be yourself is the best advice I can give, because with slams, you never know. I mean, like I said to you earlier, the first slam I won was in London. It was in May 2017, I think. The very next night, I did another slam in a small provincial place somewhere and got absolutely sunk without trace doing the same poem in the first round as I, as I did in London. Mm. You know, so... It's every slam's different, so just take it as a bit of fun. Uh, Nick always says it's just like an open mic with a bit, with a bit of an added element. Like you said earlier, I remember getting knocked out in the first round of a slam in Wolverhampton in my early days. It must have been two years later. I bumped into Roy McFarland at the Verve Poetry Festival. You know, Roy is an absolutely fantastic poet, and he actually made a point of saying that he remembered my poem from that slam and how good he thought it was. And that meant so much because, you know, I got knocked out in the first round, you know. So to hear somebody of such standing as Roy McFarlane say he remembered my poem and he really enjoyed it, I'm like, I felt like I'd won. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll take that. Don't take it too seriously. Enjoy it. If you do start taking it too seriously, just stop. And for people who are maybe not familiar with slams, as I wasn't, it's worth mentioning, I think, that the judging of them is often just by random members of the audience, isn't it? So it is, yeah. It, there, there isn't a formal sort of poetry cabal. No, I mean, there are slams that... Pre- I mean, I've been a judge in, in a few. I don't like judging, I've got to be honest. Now, if you have to publicly announce your scores, I don't do it. Because <laughs> I did one, and somebody who I know well and really respect didn't perform well on the night, and I'm thinking, I've got to give him a low score here. And I hated doing it. You know, mm-hmm. so unless the scores are private now, I, I just don't do it. But I have done a few. Uh, so, so there are a few that pre-select the judges, but most, mostly, yeah, they're, they're just people selected at random from the audience. So they might be poetry experts. They might be comedians. They might be people who like comedy poetry. They might be people who've never been to a poetry event in their life, you know. And so that's part of the fun. You know, you never quite know what you're going to get because of that. That's that's a reason why you should never take the scores too seriously. Just to reflect on all that, so you kind of started in 2003. You bought out this book, non-book, in 2005. Please, people listening, don't go and buy Clive's book from 2005. Yeah. Can you imagine if it suddenly became number one? And then you create this amazingly popular um, Ubi Hive open mic. 
and I, and I can see that because when I'm say, when I was talking to people, when I was getting going, I said, where are good places to go and perform? I said, well, you should go to Clive, Clive and Nick's event, Ubi Hive. Quite a few people said that to me. So highly successful event. Then you've got your book in Happy, your first debut collection in 2016. And you've had two more out since then. So 2018 saw life. What's life about? There was no real theme. It, it was my aim at that time was just to be like I was on the stage, which was a mixture of serious and humorous. Yeah. And there was no real theme, except perhaps the last poem was quite a serious one about, you know, when I die, if you don't like me, don't pretend you do. Because <laughs> <laughs> I find that so hypocritical when people who I hate him, I hate, oh, no, he's, not, oh, he's such a wonderful person. Oh, yeah, don't get me going on that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually got another book due out shortly. I haven't got a date for it yet, but it's actually at the publisher at the moment. Can you um, tell us what that's called, or is that under wraps at the minute? This will hopefully make you laugh. Musical hamsters and other strange phenomena. <laughs> yeah. You tell me who that's with? Uh, it's with Black Eyes Publishing, who did my last book. But I believe it's coming out under a different imprint, but it's the same, you know, the ah, same okay. people. Uh, just... But it's with the publisher at the moment. They have said, yes, they're interested in publishing it, but it's got to go through the editing. And I think they're going to be, we can't do that because we don't want to be sued, you know, in one or two yeah. cases. But yeah, it's, it's definitely happening. Oh, I look forward to that. And will that be this year? I hope so. Yeah, I, I would think so. And that's all humorous poetry. There's no serious stuff in it at all. Brilliant. Just for completeness as well. So in between that and life from 2018, there's It Could Be Verse. It Could Be Verse, which I think is my best book. I think it's the best book so far. Unfortunately, it was released just as the pandemic started. I always like to say, you know, it, it, it caused such a, you know, it caused such a stir that it closed the whole world down. You know. Absolutely. But unfortunately, because of that, obviously, I never did any live book launches. It was all online, and that was disappointing. I mean, I wasn't the only one by any means. Yeah, that, I've got mixed feelings. I think it was my best collection, and it sold reasonably well. You know, it, it, it hasn't been a flop by any means, but the fact that I couldn't go when it was fresh, I couldn't go out pushing it and going to events like I would have liked to have done. You know, it was it was a downside to it without a doubt. You know, an online launch is good, but it's not quite the same. So the it could be verse. Is that theme? Because I'm about to order some of your books. You mentioned that life and I think happy were just echoing your performance sets. Yeah. And is that the same for it could be verse? Yeah, it's, it's the same for it could be verse. Yeah. Um, it was. I was beginning to veer towards comedy then, so I think there's a little bit more comedy than than serious, but there is some serious stuff in there. Yeah, the reason, the reason I ask that is because um, when I talk to people about their collection, they're often held up in saying, I've got a lot of poetry, but I can't think of the theme or I can't think of the idea. And I'm like, don't worry about it. They're, you know, just put it out how you feel comfortable about it. Don't try and force it into something it's not. Yeah, I think that is good. I don't think there needs to be a theme for a poetry collection. Mm. I mean, if there's any theme in my early ones, it's literally the... I am a changeable person. I mean, obviously, I'm not in the greatest of health and I'm on medication. So I am a bit changeable. You know, my mood can swing. And, and that I try to reflect that in that it's up one minute, down the next, and up and down. And, you know, and I try to do that in the books, in, in those books. You know, it'd be funny, then serious, and then back to funny and back to And that was me. You know, that that was me at that time. You know, so... If there was a theme in the books, that was it. 
you know, but I don't think there needs to be a theme in a, in a poetry collection, really. So this might be a good time to ask you if you've got a poem that you could share with us so people could get a sense of you as a performer. Yeah, sure. You talked about the wordplay, and um, I'll do one which is my favourite. Without a doubt, it's my favourite. And it's, I think it is my most popular piece. I think you've heard it. But talking of slams, this poem got me my best ever scores in a slam. And there were five judges... And three of them gave it 10 out of 10. And the other two gave it 9.5. And then I did the same poem at Wolverhampton Slam a few weeks later and Sunk Without Trace. (laughs) But in general, uh, when I say it's Sunk Without Trace, I mean, with the judges, it's Sunk Without Trace. But it's got an absolutely brilliant reception from the audience. And that's all that matters. Don't worry, that resonates. That is purely the way slams work, isn't it? Yeah. So I like to preface this poem by saying that giving the little story that, you know, I couldn't quite understand how it happened because I live on my own. Um, you know, um, I've lived on my own for a long time. You know, I'm not the most sociable of people, so I don't have visitors. And I've obviously, you know, I'm on my own because, look, you know, I'm ginger for God's sake, you know. But I go to work and I always lock the place up when I go out. So I don't know how it's happened. But I came to type a poem for an event. And I didn't realise, because I don't touch type, I literally look at the keyboard as I'm typing, and I didn't realise that somebody had crept into my flat and changed the letters F and P round on my keyboard. You know, I was on the way to the event, and I started reading it, thinking, yeah, I'm gonna... and I'm thinking, oh, no, what have I done? And I was stuck with it, so I had to, I had to read it, and this is it. It's called When F and P Change Flaces. This poem, if that's what it is, is about nothing in particular. Just various bits and feces. I don't like to start with politics, appealed pull of fistfots and fanatics who couldn't organise a fiss-off in a brewery. And in the case of UK immigration policy, responsible for plenty of fatalities, though I'm sure they will be reported favourably by Pox News and its British equivalent GB News with Nigel Parridge and his friends. So let's be more pliffant and talk about sports fifa like Feet Samfras. Famous fiefful from the fast, like Napoleon Bonaparte, or even contemporary fiefful, like the unfortunately not yet dearly defarted Fiers Morgan, or Katie Hofkins, who always seems like she's paused a pineapple off her bum. No? Okay, let's talk music. You may have an eclectic taste ranging from the Poopiters through offerers like Magic Plute. Old British hits like XTC's Making Flans, poor Nigel, I'd poison them. Wartime classics like Fack Off Your Troubles. Beatles classics like I Peel Pine. Festive songs like A Fartridge in a Fear Tree. Or even some frog rock. I wish I was musical. I'd go on tour entertaining the peefaying public in places like Pinland, Portugal, France and probably New Poundland. But enough of that. Let's talk pood. I'm not sure what to eat today, roast fork and apple sauce, or pish and chips. And if pish and chips, do I have fickled onions or mushy fees? Or do I just have a fucker steak and kidney fry? I'm not saying I eat too much pood that's unhealthy and patterning, but my clothes are size trifle XL. Feet of five for fig to fake up fickled feather. And what? Flagerism. Fuck up. Or I'll front your lights out. Oh, appended are we? I pray you don't call the felice, the coffers, the pilf, the figs, 
Fuck the police. Oh, come on, I was joking. I wouldn't really funch you. I don't approve of pisticops or violence of any kind. I'm a fassy pist. My house has fatio doors. It's a big house. It's rather fallacial. With a games room for fallen fingfong. Okay, I'm taking the fees. I live in a folky little plat or apartment ipufrapur among the pheasants. And I'm probably stuck here until the grim reefer comes calling. Whatever a reefer is, I wouldn't know. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to do that one. Because oh, I, when I think of you, I think that's one of the first ones I heard you do. And it was just totally different to anything that I'd experienced in poetry yeah. <laughs> before. How hard is that to read? Like, you it know, took a lot of practice. It, it did take practice, a lot of practice. A lot of practice. <laughs> practice, yeah. Uh, I mean, once you've mastered it, it becomes quite easy. Okay. Uh, I mean, obviously, because I read anyway, I, I do have problems remembering things, so I do mm. read anyway. So it's obviously typed as it said, not as it would be if it was typed properly, you know, yeah. so that makes it easier. But, yeah, occasionally you slip up and you, you say, but nobody notices because, you know, it, it's it's there's so much going on in the poem. If you make one slip, nobody notices anyway. But yeah. The funny thing about, for me, listening to it, and I've heard it a few times now, is the more you listen to it, the more the more as an audience member, I'm waiting to see, can he get through it? Can he get through this thing to the <laughs> end? And we're just waiting for the slip. So yeah. If you were to yeah. tell me, no, they were they were purposeful sleeps, I'd, I'd completely believe it. <laughs> there, there was a predecessor to that poem, which was the first one of its type I ever did, where I what what were the letters? Um can't remember what letter it was that I used, but uh that was the letter P as well. I find P is a good letter for for, for poems like that. But any natural sound had to be replaced by me blowing a raspberry. <laughs> so I'm standing there blowing raspberries and pulling faces and and the audience reaction was I mean it took me a, it took a lot of guts to do it to be honest. Yeah uh, because it was a complete departure from ever anything I'd ever done. At that time there were two people who I would show my work to if I was unsure of it. And they, I could guarantee that they would give a honest feedback, but without being brutal, you know. Uh, and that's two people I've already mentioned, Nick and Chloe. I know that they are both, you know, they would tell me if it wasn't going to work, but they wouldn't be brutal about it. And with that, Nick's reaction was, what the fuck? And Chloe's reaction was like, uh, well, it's different. <laughs> But they'd only seen it written down. That I, They hadn't actually heard me perform it. And I'm sitting there thinking, if anybody else did that, I would be laughing my socks off. So I decided to do it anyway. <laughs> and, you know, the <laughs> the audience reaction was stunning. It was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. And again, I know I'm mentioning Chloe quite a lot, actually, but Chloe actually was a big influence on me. Although Chloe is mainly a, a serious poet, there is some very brilliant subtle humor in her work as well and then one night i went to see her doing a set somewhere and she was like, oh i've got nothing new tonight you know it, it's like it's all you've heard or you've heard and then she pulled out this parody song which was stunningly brilliant it was really really funny and it had the whole room crying with laughter and i'm thinking she can't sing she admits she can't sing 
She's playing an instrument. She can't play an instrument, but she's doing it. And it was hilarious. It sort of made something click in my mind that if I think it's funny, somebody else is going to find it funny as well. That's when the humour started to really come out of me because I thought, well, I've seen somebody who can't sing have the whole room in stitches. So there's nothing to worry about. There's a fine line, isn't there, between poetic comedy and stand-up. Yeah, I, I talked to somebody recently. I mean, by the time this goes out, you'll have heard James Scott Harris on here, who said he started out as a stand-up comedian or he tried it. But yeah. the audience is really different. What's your feelings on that? Do you border into kind of stand-up or are you very much about humorous storytelling in poetry? I would love to do stand-up. I have actually headlined a comedy event. Have uh, you? What was that? What was that? That was uh, Fast, Fresh and Dirty in, in Bath, just before the pandemic. I entered the Comedy Poetry Slam at the venue where they hold this event. I came second. I didn't win. Well but the person who hosts the comedy events asked me to do a headline set at his event. And I thought it was going to be all comedy poetry. And I got there and I got a half hour set and I started looking around. I'm thinking, I know him. He's a stand-up comedian. And then all the acts were doing their stuff. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get crucified here. You know, I am going to get absolutely crucified with what I... But they loved it. They really did. But what stops me doing... I would like to do stand-up. But what stops me is the fact that I have got issues with memory. Mm. So, I mean, I can cover it up well when I'm performing. If I'm doing... I mean, if I'm doing an open mic, obviously, I just hold my tablet in my hand because it would be pretentious to do anything else. But if I'm doing a set or doing my show, I've got to stand with my tablet on so that I'm still free to move my arms and perform, but it's there so I can see the words. And and you can't really get away with that in stand-up, you know. I mean, it, I've never, well, I say I've never seen a stand-up comedian reading his material. I have seen one, but don't think it works, you know. Yeah. So I'll stick to what I do and I enjoy it, so. It's funny you talk about the uh, memory issues. I, I've brought to quite a few poets, and, and it seems to it does seem to be more common than not um, which it, I find, I have it. So I have a condition called non-epileptic attack disorder, and it means sometimes I black out and have memory loss, and I can't. I struggle to remember things. Yeah. So I have to quite often read uh, just as a prompt because I, I struggle to remember it. It's an odd thing, isn't it, to to get into something like standing up in front of a group of people, like bearing words that you've written, knowing that you've got these issues going on that yeah. makes it personally challenging. Yeah, I mean, I have great admiration for any poet that can memorise their work. Yeah. Not just one poem, but a whole set or a whole show, you know. I tried. I tended to find, not so much now because people know me, and but I tended to find that when, in the earlier days, people tend to think you're just too lazy to learn it. They never have any idea how hard I tried. I would spend hour after hour after hour doing all the things that people recommended and then I think I cracked it, and then 10 minutes later, it's gone. That's why I couldn't do stand-up. Plus the fact I'm not sure how I would handle a heckler because I'm sensitive. Yes. Uh, if somebody says, hey, this is a load of shit, whatever, I would probably believe them. <laughs> yeah, so. That's what I've heard talk about on this podcast quite a bit, is the poetry community is a special kind of audience. So certainly the ones I've been to, they tend to be on your side from the get-go. Yeah. You know? Whereas I think just talking to people who've tried stand-up, it's very much like you have to deliver something and you've got to deliver it well. Yeah. Otherwise, you are going to get... That's part of the nature of why people go out to them. 
Yeah. Um, do you, yeah. So presumably you find that as well with the poetry audience. They're, they're almost too reassuring sometimes. They're just like, yeah, ev- virtually everybody's on your side. I say virtually because there are some exceptions, but in general, yeah, everybody's on your side and, and, you know, they've got your back. And if you, if you mess up, you know, you feel terrible, but it doesn't really matter because everybody's understanding. Yeah, absolutely. We, we talked earlier briefly about, how you started writing poetry and you you also mentioned um, growing up a little bit was poetry something that you discovered uh, in your child what was your childhood like can you say anything like that you can share share with us that, that kind of explains how you found yourself into the world of poetry it's difficult I don't think it was so much the childhood that led me to poetry it was just I was like everybody not everybody but lots of people when they're going through difficult times, do write either poetry or diary or whatever. And that's what I did. I mean, my childhood was very unpleasant uh, mm. without going into too many details. You know, it was not... And I had a lot of illness as well, which basically made me a prisoner in in the circumstances that I would rather not be, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, I had a very difficult childhood. I actually... My mother died when I was very young, but my dad died when I was mid-twenties. I was still living with him then. I was quite ill at the time. I actually barely went to school after the age of about 12 because I was always ill and, and you know, this, that and the other. And it was not the best environment to be trapped in. And obviously that leaves scars and it, it takes a long time to overcome it. And I mean, that it, that is definitely the root of the darker side of my poetry now, you know, the the lack of self-esteem, you know, the lack of confidence. I mean, a lot of my show revolves around an inner voice, you know, telling me I'm no good. I mean, I've had to convince people afterwards that I don't actually hear voices. (laughs) I'm not hearing voices, honestly. It's it's just the self-doubt nagging you, you know, this is no good, people are not going to like this and you can't do this and, you, you know, you're useless. I was made to feel that I was useless basically so yeah i guess there was an influence there but i didn't start writing as i say until 2003 which was well past my childhood i mean i'm an old man yeah (laughs) surely not (laughs) i'm 35 for god's sake absolutely (laughs) some of that is hinted at in some of your most serious poetry that really resonates with me because my childhood wasn't great either it was only when I got to poetry much, much later in life that I managed to even start to unpack some of it. Yeah. And and I and it was almost like toss of a coin as to whether I did poetry or not. I nearly, because I used to be a games developer, so I nearly went back into doing that during lockdown. And it was only when Holly went to use, she chased me up and said, you were going to come to a poetry event, but you didn't come. You're going to come to the next one. And I was like, oh, I'll give it a go and I'll... I'll, I'll make, you know, I'll, I'll do it with a bit of levity and write this mad poem about potato and then realise it's not about that at all, that I, that I suddenly found the ability to say or to, ex- to express things that I'd never really been able to express publicly before. Yeah. And, and I think just, just some, of the, some of the hints I'm getting from your story, that's, that's been a similar experience, life experience for you too. It has. I mean... I'll always remember one event that where I finally decided to do a poem that hinted at what had happened in the past, and that was Howell in Birmingham, which was a fabulous, fabulous event. Leon was special. You know, I mean, Leon was a fabulous host and a wonderful person, and you felt at ease 
So I did a poem on the stage as Howell, and I felt a great weight lifting off my shoulders as I did it. It's out there now. It's done. Yeah, it, it was quite a, a water watershed moment in a way that I finally got off my chest. Well, I'd occasionally hinted at, but never gone into. Typically of a spoken word audience, especially in Birmingham, everybody was really supportive and Leon was Leon. I found the exact same thing. Like, I, I've, I found it took a while for me to be able to say some of the poetry that I do. Some of my poetry is quite dark. I found when I first started doing it that suddenly I felt like I wasn't unburdening. I felt like I was sharing some of the burden, like other people were shouldering some of that burden now because I could say it out loud. And then listening to other people, you then feel, I then felt like the capacity to maybe shoulder somebody else's when I hear their stuff, which is why I, I kind of avoid some of the really long online poetry open mics because I'm kind of worn out by the end. Because yeah. um, a lot of it sinks in, and then you suddenly go, "I'm full. I can't. I can't do any more of this." That really resonates with me. And I think if anybody's thinking about poetry to to help explore that thing, I've found it a perfect medium to be able to to express things that I couldn't otherwise just say out loud. Yeah, it, it is, and I understand exactly where you're coming from as well with the with the long events because. Mm. I tend to avoid events that are specifically mental health themed because it is triggering. You know, I mean, people give trigger warnings and content warnings, but you still listen. I was finding it increasingly difficult. I mean, there was, you know, there was an event in Sweden, which was excellent, you know, uh, which started after Ruby Hive. And, you know, it was an excellent event and people got a lot from it. But I was beginning to find that it's too much. You know, I can listen to that sort of poetry and appreciate it, but I need the lighter side as well. Right. We normally do these in coffee shops. I ask this to everybody. If we were doing this in person, what would be your beverage of choice, Clive? It would have to be coffee. I don't drink alcohol, not through choice, but I'm on quite a lot of medication and, you know, it's not a good idea to be drinking as well. Uh, I do like a drink, but no, I love coffee. I'm a real, I drink too much coffee, far too much coffee. I always start the day with a cup of tea, but nice. then the rest of the day, it's it's coffee. Are um, you a coffee aficionado, or do you like me? I like I like an escape if I can get it. Just like I don't like instant coffee. Okay, uh, I used to. Then I discovered latte and flat white and all that, and there is a difference. Uh, I'm not keen on instant coffee, but okay. away from coffee. I do tend to, or did tend to drink too much of the fizzy stuff like Coke and Pepsi. I'm trying to give that up now. And a drink that I love is uh, coconut water. Okay. It's it's really refreshing. It's brilliant, especially in warm weather. It's really refreshing. And, you know, it's quite tasty as well. So I'm drinking quite a lot of that at the moment, trying Mm -hmm. to wean myself off Pepsi Max. Presumably that's not straight from the coconut. Oh, it's in a bottle. It's, it's, it's in a bottle, yeah. Oh, can't. No, Jay, I got cheating. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's that's one of my favourite drinks now. And you a foodie? What would you have to go with it? I love Chinese food. Oh, okay. What's your go-to Chinese dish? I like the all-you-can-eat banquet type things. You know, the okay. buffet type things. Because I'm a pig. You know, I just love Chinese food so much. I mean, there's a restaurant in Birmingham in the 
Chinese quarter, which I discovered by well, not by accident. We were looking for a Chinese restaurant, but when Kathy Carson came over and did her show, and and then uh, like a couple of weeks later, I did mine as well. And we were looking for somewhere to eat, and we went into the Chinese quarter because it was just opposite the hotel we were all staying at. And we went to this little restaurant, and the food was absolutely heavenly. It's mm-hmm. ab- and it was cheap. You know, it was cheap as well, and it was like the good sign was that virtually everybody eating there was Chinese. Okay. So you wasn't so much eating like the westernized Chinese yes. food as what the Chinese people eat, you know, and it, it's gorgeous. Honestly, it's absolutely delicious. I'm trying to remember what the place is called. I know it sounded very much like um, the Wu-Chang clan, you know, the, the okay. rappers. So it's something along those lines, you know, something very close to that. But yeah, the food was gorgeous. And I, yeah, I do love Chinese food. I like Indian food. I like Italian food. I'll try That's anything. Foody then. <laughs> yeah. Do you read a lot of poetry? Yeah, I do. Um, I read a lot of all sorts of stuff, to be honest. Okay. Uh, you know, I read, uh, I've subscribed to several magazines and journals, and I do read a lot of poetry. I read more these days of people I know and admire, and I buy their books. I've got quite a big collection of poetry books from right from when I started being interested, and you know, they were mainly you know, the well-known poets. And then I started going to the events and seeing people like Vanessa Kisule and people like that and Luke Wright and various others. And so, yeah, most of the books I buy are by performance poets who yes. who I know, you know. Um, I do occasionally still read the more, you know, the pagey type poetry. You know, there's one or two page poets who I really admire. I also like, as well as just you know, because it's the poet. I like to support people. If, you know, if if I like somebody, I mean, even if I'm not particularly keen on their poetry, I will still buy the books, you know, to support them because they are good at what they do. It might not be my cup of tea, but they're still good. The same here. You've actually, in terms of inspirations and, and stuff, you've mentioned quite a few names. You mentioned Roy McFarlane. You mentioned yeah. Luke Wright. You mentioned Chloe. I didn't get Chloe's last name. What was Chloe? Uh, Jacquet. Uh, it's a French name. What inspires or influences you, either classically or contemporary? It doesn't have to be just poetry in terms of the performance art that I think you favour towards. Yeah. I mean, the first poet uh, whose work I really, really fell in love with was Simon Armitage. Okay. You know, I I loved a lot of his early stuff. Some of his later stuff I found to be a little bit pretentious and, you know, it sort of veered away from the sort of stuff that I enjoyed reading but then again i bought a couple of his recent books and really enjoyed them you know there's a there's an australian i mean as i said i used to write haiku and tanker there's an australian poet who does write more traditional western poetry as well but is a brilliant tanker poet called david john terralink who's um a lovely guy actually i mean um i've never met him he's australian you know and uh but when you know, he, he is top notch. Uh, and he used to send me just completely out of the blue. He used to send me books and magazines and, you know, to because I was interested and I was trying to learn. And I'd quite often get home from work and find a, a parcel from David in Australia. So, yeah, he's another one. And out of the poets today, obviously, I'm going to mention Nick because Nick undersells himself. You know, he, he says, oh, well, I haven't written anything decent for ages, which is nonsense. Uh, he's a really good poet who does a mixture of serious and and comedy. 
Uh, obviously, there's Chloe. Naima Shamshun, I think, is an absolutely fabulous poet, you know, relatively new on the scene. And, you know, she's I'm, been on this podcast. I know, I listened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's making waves and she's really good. Uh, Jemima Hughes, obviously. On the comedy side, I would, there's two I would have to mention Robert Garnham, who is my comedy hero when it comes to poetry. He is like, he is a genius. He is so surreal, but so funny, you know, and it, it, it goes by the title of the Professor of Whimsy and it suits him, you know. And the other one who's relatively new on the scene, and um, we had him at UB Hive, the first live UB Hive last week after the, you know, after or last month, after the, uh, this month, a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was, the, our first live one at the Beehive since the lockdown. And his name's Edward Tripp. Okay. Now, he is just unspeakably funny. He is, he, I mean, he's a comedian as well. He's, he's, he does stand up as well. I mean, he, he had the beehive in uproar. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was just so funny. I actually travelled to Exeter for an open mic recently just to see him because he was headlining. Wow, that says uh, a lot about someone then. Yeah. And, you know, when we decided to, like, we're going live with Ubehive again, we had to ask him to come, you know. Yeah. You know. And then another funny poet who I don't see so much these days, uh, I mean, another one who is a stand-up comedian as well and is Angie Boutra from Bristol. You know, she she's brilliant as well. A lot of names in there. I'll see if I can dig, dig out some of the examples of some of their work for people who are listening to this so that they can see um, what they're doing. So... What are your hopes and dreams for your poetry? I mean, you, you've, we've already said you're a fantastic ambassador and you're a fantastic enabler, especially of new and upcoming um, poets. What's in it for you? Where do you want your, your stuff to go? Yeah, I mean, I'm, obviously this one-man show, as I say, it's already been in five different cities and there's a couple more in the pipeline and it's been international online. I've performed in New York, uh, the New York Poetry Festival. Yes, I saw that. Um, I mean that that was that was surreal. It was UB Hive and Kemlin Tambape, who uh, is actually from Singapore, but based in America. She actually asked me if I would be interested in doing the New York Poetry Festival, wow. and I just laughed. I thought she was joking. I really did think she was joking. I just laughed it off. Didn't reply. I just thought, you know, it was a joke. And yeah. I said to Nick after the event, I said, "Was I just asked to perform in New York?" He said, yes, you was, you stupid. And then he used it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I messaged this, you know, straight away saying, look, if you're serious, yes, I'm very interested. Yeah. Uh, so obviously I'd like to do more international. I mean, I'm going back to New York in three weeks' time, but that's yes. more as a tourist than, than you know, I, I fell in love with the place and uh, I want to see more of it because I was only there for three nights and four days last time, you know. Uh, yes. So I'm going back to see more of the place. But, you know, I'm... Sort of branching out now, I'm going to be doing workshops. I'm doing a workshop at um, Witchwood Festival uh, okay. in June. And so that, you know, a comedy poetry workshop. So I'm probably going to be doing more of that. But from the performance side, this is going to sound stupid, but, it, you know, it, it doesn't sound like much of an ambition, but I want to get back to performing in Birmingham. Since lockdown, and it's quite understandable because I haven't been back, there's, you know, a lot of the events that I used to go to haven't restarted. I think Hit the Ode clashes with UB Hive online. Uh, so I haven't performed, except for 
doing my show, uh, which obviously I organised myself, and doing an event which Gary Hoskisson arranged. I haven't performed in Birmingham for a long time, and I feel like I might have, understandably, I might be sort of the forgotten man, if you know what I mean. And Birmingham is home to me, and it means a lot, you know. So um, I want to get back to the Midlands and do more events in the Midlands as well. But I'm glad you said that because, like I said, I saw you first in in, in an American online poetry thing. You said you're from Birmingham. At that time, I was doing a lot in Birmingham. I was doing Verve, I was, I was doing the Glee, I was doing quite a lot. And I didn't see you. And I was just like, this guy seems really popular. Uh, and then I discovered like quite a few people were saying, oh, you should go see Clive. You should do it. Um, was a really good guy um, in, in this space. And I'm going, he's not anywhere. Where is he? So I'm, re I'm really pleased to hear that you're looking to reconnect with Yeah, I, I do want, I mean, the problem I've got now, and, you know, I'm going to be open because yeah. there's no other way to be. I've got health problems. Yes. And I can't do what I used to do before the pandemic. So I'm having to prioritise sort of the show and feature sets and, you know, things like that. So it's difficult for me to travel backwards and forwards because obviously I'm doing a full-time job as well, you know. So mm. it's difficult for me. I mean, I've, I've put me out, you know, I bought tickets to the Verve events you know, a couple of times, and I've been unable to make it. You know, on one yeah. occasion, I was just not well. And, you know, obviously for open mics and well, whatever, if I'm not well, I just don't go. But for a feature set or a headline set, I will always be there no matter what. But I am finding it difficult to get back to Birmingham and sort of get known again, if you know what I mean. I know people will remember me, but so it's a bit of a catch-22. I want to be headlining, but I need to get back there and do a few open mics before I get the chance, you know. And, yeah. But I will do, as I say. Uh, definitely will do. The next Verve event is actually when I'm in New York, so I can't do that one. But definitely, definitely want to get back. <laughs> I like the Verve events. I've been to quite a lot of the Verve events. My son, who, who was 12 at the time, he did his first poetry open mic at Verve. And he was just like... Absolutely nailed it. He was he was ever so shy and embarrassed. And as soon as he stepped up to the mic, he was just like boom. <laughs> he was just like off you go. And he hasn't done it since. He's turned thirteen, so he's just puberty's <laughs> kicked in now. Um, but yeah, completely blew me away. I did really really like the verb. It, 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 there was a lot of people turn up. It was also felt like quite a supportive environment as well, yeah. a safe environment, which I think you need for especially if you're performing for the first time at these things. Yeah, and I love the Verve Festival as well. I couldn't make it this year because yeah. I just couldn't get the time off work. It was like at a time when my boss was on holiday and I've been told that if my boss is on holiday, I've got to be there, you know, so I just couldn't couldn't make it this year. Yeah, and I think you said before you struggle with weekend stuff as well, don't you, because of work? Yeah, not so much now. It was a real problem. I used to work, uh, uh, before the pandemic, I used to work, uh, Saturday nights, well, all day and night Saturday. And then after the pandemic, it was Sunday nights. But now, at the moment, I'm not working any nights. It's all daytime. Oh. A couple of nights, the couple of days of the week where I finish quite late, you know, Thursdays and Fridays. But there's no bar to me performing at weekends now, which is good. So one thing I was going to ask you, actually, when you're not doing poetry and you're not working, do you have other interests and, and things? Yeah, Um I am a big sports fan. I love football, rugby league. In fact, I like most sports. Uh, tennis, I love. Cricket, I love. You know, football's number one and rugby league number two. But 
Yeah, so I, I, I do a lot of reading. I love music. I don't watch a lot of TV other than sport. I'm very interested in politics. as a lot of my serious stuff. I was going to uh, say, that never comes across in your poetry, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I do write satire, which, um, you, know, I, you know, genuinely not comedic satire, but satire, satire sort of thing, you know, which I tend to do in a pseudonym because, which nobody knows what it is and nobody ever will. Because when I started... I I got a few death threats for one of my articles. Holy. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's people that, that couldn't have been serious because even then I was doing it in a in a pseudonym and, you know, they couldn't have possibly known who I was, but it was like, you know, you're going to die and you're blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. So now I, if I do write, I, I do less of it now than I used to because I just haven't got the time. But, yeah, I do I do like writing satire. And, and the thing with satire is that anything's fair game. Like politics, I was a massive supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, I rejoined the the Labour Party because because of him. I left when they shit on him, uh, and I'll never go back. But as a satirist, he's a target, you know. And I, I remember watching "Have I Got News for You," and like they were taking the Mickey out of Jeremy Corbyn. Now, whether it was justified or not. People were up in arms, oh, typical BBC, you know, bashing the left and this, that, and the other. But I'm thinking, no, no, he's a politician, he's the leader of a party, he's fair game. Yeah. But for Public satire. Public yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's something I enjoy. But yeah, I, I do read a lot, serious stuff and comedic stuff. I love Private Eye. <laughs> and I read New Statesman, which is a sort of left leaning political and cultural, ma- cultural magazine. So, but sport, sport is my big thing outside of writing and performing. Do you know, I was going to ask you um, which team, and then I thought, gosh, that could divide the listening, the listening <laughs> audience. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong Birmingham fan. I was, funnily enough, I mean, as, as I've hinted, I'm not close to my family. Anybody else in the family who's a football fan, and not many of them are, but they're all Villa fans. The first match I ever went to, two of my sisters are very much older than me, and the first match I ever went to was my eldest sister's boyfriend was a Birmingham fan, and he took me to my first match because my dad didn't ever take me anywhere like that. So the first match I went to, I still remember it, was Birmingham against Bristol City. Once you've been, you know, and I got hooked, and especially as Birmingham at that time had a very good team, which was unusual in our history, you're hooked, you know, they're the first team you went to see, and you're going to support them. You know, and they were the local team as well. And now I'll pretend I hate the Villa. I mean, I don't. Of course I don't. But just for the banter, I'll be, you know, I mean, there's somebody at work who's a Villa fan and I'm like, oh, shit on the Villa. And, you know, yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but really, you know, it's just football, you know, but you have to have a bit of banter, don't you? You do. The first team I properly went to see regularly, Kidderminster Harriers. All right, yeah. I'm not a big footballer fan, but I really used to like the experience, you know, yeah. of, of going because it was totally different to anything I'd done before. Um, do you have a poem that we can close out on? Yeah. I mean, the F&P poem that I did earlier is in, in the forthcoming book. And I'll do another one that inspired the title, which is Never Buy a Cheap Hamster. Have you ever heard that one? No. Right. Okay. So Never Buy a Cheap Hamster. Sometimes my poems are a bit surreal. This one is more serious, I feel. You see, if there's one thing really pisses me off, it's my hamster trying to play Rachmaninoff. He will probably get away with List, but when he tries to play Sergei, he just sounds pissed. 
The notes are just all over the place, like my poems. It's a bloody disgrace. I paid a fiver for that useless beast. You'd think he could play Chopin at least. I think those who went to the conservatoire cost 150 quid or more. And I know that was a dodgy rhyme. Whose poem is it, yours or mine? I think he got some kind of bursary to learn to sing like Freddie Mercury. But that's no good to a fan of piano who likes a bloody good concerto. Uh, the gerbils of the orchestra. All bloody night he sings I want to break free because he can't remember Bohemian Rhapsody. I wish he would break free, is what I'm saying. His singing is worse than his piano playing. So the message is clear, unless you're demented. Concert-level hamsters are pretty expensive. And don't get me started on the dog. He's a cute little fellow, but do you think he can play Dvorak on the cello? A music fan once told me the animals were good. I'd ram my piano up their arse if I could. All the money I've wasted depleting my wealth I could have had bloody lessons myself. And I may have exaggerated about the gerbils. <laughs> so that's that one. And uh, yeah, the first the first time I ever performed that live, that last line, and it turned out to be, it got a lot of laughs and it yeah. wasn't deliberate. <laughs> I said, um, and I may have exaggerated about gerbils. I, I mean, the gerbils. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that one would almost work to to um, music, wouldn't it? There's, yeah. there's, there's a strong, if you don't mind me saying, there's a strong Python-esque vibe. Yeah, I don't mind you saying that at all because I'm a big, big fan of Monty Python. I mean, I know a lot of the stuff. I mean, I used, uh, I didn't see much of it when I was younger, but I'm a big fan of the old John Cleese. I'm not a fan of the new John Cleese, but John Cleese was a comic genius and the Python team, despite some of the what would be classed as problematical now. They came up with some classics, you know. The other one, uh, sometimes people say, like the wordplay poems, like the F&P and one or two others, people say it reminds me of Ronnie Barker. Yeah. As someone who aspires to do comedy, I can't think of two higher compliments than Ronnie Barker and Monty Python. Tell you who I was thinking of, in addition to Python, um, this probably be out of the frame of reference for a lot of people, Michael Benteen. In fact, I discovered a lot of this stuff later. I never heard it during the time, but Python, Goon Shows, Tony Hancock are like, th th those are big references for me. But yeah, Michael Benting was big on wordplay when he did his own stuff as well. And uh, I'm just listening listen to that. And particularly that one, I've got Python. i got like, yes, yeah. <laughs> this is the one for Somebody else who, who, if it's possible to worship a performer who's no longer with us, I mean, worship's a big word, but yeah. Victor Borger. Oh, yes. Okay. He was an absolute gene. And I have actually got a poem, which I which is after something Victor Borger did, you know, and that's quite popular as well. That man was, for me, the greatest genius I have ever seen in entertainment. I recently rediscovered him because I, I remember seeing him as a kid and thinking he was really funny. And then, as you do, I forgot all about him, and they never even crossed my mind. And yeah. then two people mentioned him to me within 24 hours of each other, completely independently of each other, saying yeah. they thought I would like him. And I happened to be at the house of one of them when they mentioned it, so we watched some clips. I was just gone. You know, I, I was absolutely blown away by him. He was so clever. I genuinely do. I mean it when I say that if I could meet one person in history as they were when they were alive, it would be him.
I've got I've got pictures of him playing a piano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot. Is that the same guy? It, right. Yeah, because okay. he was an actually he was a brilliant classical musician, a brilliant you know a, a prodigious musician, who I think possibly he got a little bit bored of the music scene, and he did have the funny side to him, and he started messing about. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, his his story is is one that I like to mention to people because he was a refugee. He was a Jewish refugee in the you know he fled the Nazis. He went to he went to America. He couldn't even speak English, and he went on to become one of the all time great entertainers and a hugely popular man. You know, and it's such an inspiring story. And you know, as I say, I have I have got a poem. He did a poem called um, "Inflationary Language." Well, I'm going to say you kind of set yourself up there, haven't you, to um, to read us another poem if you wouldn't mind. Right. Okay. So I found it. So yeah, my my comic hero is Victor Borger, who was an absolute genius. I saw a clip of him doing a piece called Inflationary Language, which the concept of it was: if there's any word in a story or or a poem or whatever, any word that sounded like that was a number or sounded like a number, increased by one to keep pace with inflation, as he said at the time. And, and I mean, that's quite relevant now, of course. So, for example, your forehead becomes your five head. And a couple of words I use in this poem, uh, fornicating becomes five nicknighting. So it, it, can, it can be a little bit difficult to follow, but most people sort of get the idea. So this is after Victor Borger. I mean, Victor Borger didn't use... He, he was a totally clean performer. He didn't swear or anything like that, but so, you know... And I'm not claiming this is anywhere near as good as he could have done, because it certainly isn't. He was a genius, and I'm not. So this is after Victor Borger. I used to three get on well with my neighbour. Then he suddenly accused me of five nicknighting with his wife. I wasn't one and a half angry. I called him a master niner, and he properly went five me, lunged at me in anger. I hit him on the five head with a sharp thrill. A passing motorist threated his horn, and I think they called the police, panicked and dialed 10-10-10. The coppers arrived, full blues and threes. I was arrested and charged with using unreasonable fives. I was sentenced three, four months in prison, but served one and a half of the sentence, five good behaviour. I was released just before five last Christmas. You know, that 13-day period when people talk about the four wise men and five's ridiculous amounts of food and drink inside themselves. On 539-ly, I hanine all this nonsense. I celebrated my release by going three a burger place, not six guys, that's way three expensive, and enjoying a one and a quarter pounder with a glass of eight up. Now, my eyesight is not perfect. I definitely don't have 21-21 vision. I'm a bit of a specky five eyes. But I'd swear the bloke opposite me was the England rugby player, Billy Thirteen Trees. Then this German guy approached me and said, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? I said 10. That confused him. I went home and listened to three Spotify playlists consisting of some classics from the 61s, the 71s and the 81s. Love Me Elevender by Elvis, Ruby Three's Day by the Rolling Stones. You're the two that I want from Greece. Tricycle Race by Queen. Swords of a Thousand and One Men by Eleven Pole Three Door. Now I'm going three to walk my five-legged K-10 friend Rover. 
and get some exercise three, get myself a seven pack. Then I've got some books three read, the triography of Archbishop Desmond three three, and two about the curse of three Tancarman three Tancarman's three. Someone told me when I first performed this, they examined it forensically and it was garbage. So it was back three square two. Second and five most, it must be funny. I tudor if this version is better. Thank you. And three little pip. That's another one. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm seeing, can, can he make it through the whole poem? <laughs> I can't imagine even trying to come near approaching something like that. I would just completely panic, I think. <laughs> it's good fun. And they did do another piece, which I am working on trying to do something along the same lines, but it's difficult. He did this thing. Any punctuation mark, he had his own sound, so that anybody, if you know, he was reading the story, uh, so people couldn't see where the punctuation marks were. So he was like doing sound effects for each, and I can't do it justice by expert, but it was hilarious. It was absolutely hilarious, and I am working on something along those lines as well. But is that a bit like what you were saying earlier about throwing a raspberry in? Yeah. So Except he was making noises with his tongue that, like, and, uh, and it, it, you yeah. know, you, you would have to see the video of it to see what I mean. But but he made that so funny. It was, like, brilliant. You know, I'm going to find, see if there's a clip of him doing that and put that right at the beginning of this podcast. That'll completely throw everybody yeah. what's going on. It's kind of satirical beatboxing, isn't it, really, in a way? Yeah. <laughs> Where can people find you online? I am not on Twitter anymore. I okay. decided Twitter wasn't for me. Uh, I used I used to be on it. I found that a lot of the in the early days of Zoom, I found that a lot of the events that got Zoom bombed were the ones that were heavily advertised on Twitter. Right. And I also had a few problems personally with people that I didn't necessarily want to associate with who were giving me some grief on Twitter. So I came off that. I'm on Instagram, but I don't use it very often. Okay. Uh, so I'm mainly on Facebook. Where, what I'm, are you on Facebook? Just Clive Oseman? Yeah, just my own name, Clive Oseman. I have got a website which I have totally neglected. I set, I'd started to set it up, and I'm not very technical. So I hope that will be up and running eventually. I mean, there's nothing on it at the moment. I'm sort of on the back burner, but... So really, it's just Facebook at the moment. Okay. And um, does Ubihive have a website? Yeah, Ubihive is, um, it's got its own Facebook page, and it's three O's, O-O-O-H, Beehive. Oh. <laughs> uh, anybody that wants to come to our events, online events or real-world events, if they email us on ubihive at btinternet.com. If you want to go find a safe space, a supportive space to, to do it for the first time, come to your event. I think you host it in a really friendly and accessible manner. So that's yeah. just for people listening. I think one of the biggest pleasures of running UB Hive is when you get somebody who comes up and does their first ever open mic, and then within a few months they're actually doing feature sets. Yes. We've we've had a few people like that, and it, it's been great to see. You know, it, it really is great to see somebody who's, like us all, really nervous on their first open mic, and and then eventually going on to feature and headline and everything and it's great when that happens so yeah we always welcome newcomers we all have to start somewhere and i mean me and nick are always at each other's throats but that's obviously <laughs> just just the you know 
an act. That's a nice banter, I think. And I, and I think it's a really great mindset. And it's, it, it certainly inspires me to want to go out and help people or find people who are thinking about doing poetry and just to give it a go because it is not only is it so therapeutic and cathartic, but it's also kind of, it's also quite fun to do. You meet some amazing people. Yeah. It, it's as as I say, spoken word really changed my life completely. What I'm doing now, you know, as I say, um, you know, I've been to New York, I've I'm doing festivals and the, all these things were things that I couldn't have ever dreamt of 10 years ago. If anybody had said 10 years ago what my life would be like now, I would have had them certified. And that's all down to spoken word. And there's a lot of people like that who say that spoken word saved their life. And it sounds like a terrible cliche, but it's not. It's really not. That completely resonates with me. Absolutely. So... Hi, Rosemary. It's been an absolute delight chatting to you and getting to know you. It's what I've been wanting to do for quite some time. So thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. We can relax now. Yeah. (laughs) Go see Clive Oseman's one-man show, What If They Laugh At Me? I'll include links to Clive's Facebook page in the description for the show dates. And also check out Clive and Nick's Hive, a regular poetry and storytelling open mic with a really, really friendly, down-to-earth and safe ambience that welcomes new and established poets from anywhere and everywhere. It's always a brilliant evening and a huge mix of voices and stories. Also, check out Clive's book, It Could Be Verse, published by Black Eyes Publishing. For me, Clive's beautiful piece titled Journey, an acrostic poem, sets out everything about Clive, his brilliant use of wordplay and how he treads delicately and carefully on the subject of mental health. Also, Poundland's Last Stand, which ends, My grammar isn't perfect. My knowledge isn't deep. But people understand me and those who show beliefs can listen to what I have to say and know I'm here for keeps. Just beautiful. Another book I am deep into at the moment is It's Honorary Bab, a Poet Laureate's Pandemic Diary published by Offers Press and from Wolverhampton Poet Laureate 2020 to 2022, Emma Pursehouse. From the explosive headline poem, Wolverhampton, A Winning City, which Emma recently performed live at Speak Your Mind in Redditch. It's a beautifully crafted reflection on both the best and worst that Wolverhampton has to offer, its people. On to my current favourite, Notes from a Backyard Poet, a beautiful list poem, culminating in the expression of Emma's playful black country dialect, whilst she dreams of the lockdown world still out there, drifting on by. Links to both of these books are in the description. Thank you for joining me on The Poetic Podcast, and I do hope you will join me and my fabulous guests again. Until then, enjoy your poetic journey through life, and most of all, stay fabulous. Bye-bye.